Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Dude, we're going to have a real Bible study tonight in that you're going to look at a lot of scriptures. Okay? Are you okay with that? Looking at a lot of scriptures? Just don't, don't go, well, uh, that might be difficult because I've already got them all printed out. <laughs> but fortunately, we're going to go through the New Testament from Romans to Hebrews in order. So we're not going to be flipping. We're going to go, you know, chapter after chapter and so forth. So it's not like you're going to have to be turning from, you know, Hebrews to Matthew and back to, you know, James again. So, uh, hallelujah. The, the, the topic uh, tonight is what is legalism? What is it? Uh, you've heard me make comments quite often in the last couple of years about uh, the grace message that is so prevalent today. And I hope you don't feel like I'm beating a horse, you know, a dead horse over this, but I, I am friends on Facebook mostly with preachers and uh, I don't uh, accept friend requests from people in the church simply because I, that's not how I want to use Facebook. Uh, my wife does. You're welcome to befriend her. Uh, but uh, there's been a, there's a couple of people that have, uh, uh, like Brittany here, was not in our church when she asked for a friend request and I accepted it and then she moved to my church. Well, I'm not going to defriend her, you know, uh, be insulting, but uh, I generally don't accept those requests. Uh, most of my uh, uh, communication with people on social media is other, is other ministers. And this error of on grace, this erroneous guy, like I said last uh, on Sunday, I don't like to call it the extreme grace message, though that's the easiest thing to call it. Uh, it's because grace is extreme. The genuine Bible message of grace is extreme. Amen. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is extreme. That God would come down here and take on the form of a man, go to the cross and pay my debt that he didn't owe that's grace. That's extreme grace. And so grace, according to the Bible, is extreme. But there is an erroneous uh, grace message out. And, and the reason I comment on it is because it is pervasive. It is all through the body of Christ. And uh, I hear it on Christian television. Uh, like I said, I'm uh, Facebook friends with a lot of preachers. And there are some friends of mine that I have known for 30 years, uh, and they have been completely taken in by this uh, erroneous grace message. And uh, they're, and the, you know, they're, uh, most of these guys are, are Rhema grads that have had long and illustrious uh, ministries and careers, you know, in, in ministry, uh, and have God has used them in, in powerful ways, and, and, and they have really great ministries, but they've bought into this grace. Uh, error, 
And, uh, and so there's a lot of debate that goes on on my Facebook, you know, uh, by different preachers, you know, trying to, to uh, grapple with this issue. And like I said, it has, it has really taken the church by, by storm. And I'm certain that most people in, our, in this congregation tonight has been exposed to this erroneous uh, message of grace. And if you haven't, you will be. And, and this message is so, uh, it's so deceptive because it sounds so good on so many points. There are so many highlights that are made that are true and they're good, but then the conclusions that are drawn are not good. And they actually end up hurting uh, the church and hurting individual believers. And so it's my job to, to uh, 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 alert you to these things and uh, identify the threat and the, and, the, and the problem. And so what I did is I, the way I got started on this, I, I, uh, there was two friends, minister friends of mine. One of them made a post and he said, I think his post was real simple. It was, uh, I don't want to go back to the beginning of it because I've scrolled all the way down. Uh, it said, uh, legalism will always make a Pharisee. Just a real simple statement. Legalism will always create or make a Pharisee. And so I just started following his post, you know, and, uh, and, and he, there were other people and, and there's, there's usually a, 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 a a good following, you know, of a lot of people that'll jump in and say, amen, good word, preach it, brother, you know, uh, and, you know, just encourage that. And then every now and then there's people like me that'll, you know, ask. And so I just typed a simple question. I said, what, can you, I think I asked, can you give me, and I, and I was doing this for a reason. I said, can you give me an example or some examples of modern day legalism? Now, before I go over the answer to this, uh, and that sounds like a lot of scriptures we're going to go through tonight, but uh, it's not everything from Romans to, to Hebrews, or yeah, Hebrews, but uh, it's a lot of scriptures. But my background coming out of the Pentecostal denomination is uh, we had a real, our church denomination had a real strong holiness background. And... Uh, I, you know, not knowing any difference as a child, that's just the way I grew up. When I was older as a teenager, uh, 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 when I was 10 years old, a, a new pastor came to our church. And our church, over the next few years, became more progressive as a, as a holiness church or a Pentecostal church. We were more progressive than the others in our district. Our church was the largest church uh, in Jacksonville of that denomination, it was considered the mother church. All the other churches in town had sprung out of that church, you know, one way or another over the, over the decades. And our church was the most influential church, the biggest church, the most pre- prestigious church. But this pastor that came, and he, his, his son and I became good buddies growing up. I met him when I was 10, and, uh, and we became good friends, and, and uh, the church became more progressive. So some of the things I'm about to share with you 
began to fall by the wayside in this particular church, so much so that when our church would go to district meetings, you know, where they'd have a district fellowship, maybe out, we were in Jacksonville, maybe out in, 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 in Dinsmore or in, uh, you know, some of the outlaying areas of town, you know, we'd have a fellowship meeting once a quarter, I think, and, you know, all the churches in that district would go out there. The people in the, in the community around Jacksonville in these outlying areas, they thought Springfield Church of God people were backslidden. I mean, they didn't almost want to have anything to do with us, but uh, by today's standards, we were very conservative, but by those standards, we weren't. But anyway, as a teenager, I, you know, I, I backslid and, and rebelled against everything that had to do with God. And, and then I got, you know, got completely away from the Lord. When I was 20 years old, I got back in a fellowship with the Lord and began to study God's word with real uh, renewed hunger and, and fervor. You know, I was just hungry for everything that, that I could uh, lay hands on, my hands on you know, concerning uh, the Bible and things of God. Well, the charismatic movement was on, and there were a lot of people being swept in to the fullness of the Holy Spirit that didn't come from these classical Pentecostal churches. You know, they didn't look like we looked. And uh, they didn't have, they didn't live with all the regulations and restrictions that I had grown up under. And so as I began to get into the word to find out what was going on, I, I realized at some point that I had been raised in a legalistic church. My church was very legalistic. Now let me describe what I refer to as legalistic. Uh, in my church, the women could not cut their hair because over in Corinthians it says, doesn't you know? Does it does not nature teach you that if a woman cuts her hair, it's a shame unto her? And uh, but if you read that passage, if you go back and read it, it was considered a shame in the culture that Paul was uh, and the Corinthians were in their secular and even uh, religious culture. It was a shame for women to have short hair. It wasn't that God said it was a, a shame for a woman to have uh, short hair. He was referring to the culture. And so uh, the women in our church couldn't cut their hair. And uh, my grandmother, you've heard me talk about my grandmother, you know, was baptized in the Holy Ghost in 1919 or whatever it was, 17. Uh, she came to our house one time to keep us when my parents were out of town. And I remember I have this, you know, I was a little guy, but I have this one real distinct memory of her washing her hair out behind the, she, she went out on the back porch. It was a, like a little stoop, you know, a little porch and then a step down. It wasn't screened or anything with a little handrail. And she leaned over the side of, the, of, the, of this handrail and washed her hair. I'd never seen anything like it because my mom always had her hair up. My grandmother's hair was below her waist and she's washing it. You know, it's quite an ordeal to wash it, rinse it, comb it out, brush it out. I mean, it was a, it was a you know, daunting looking task. And it, it occurred to me when I was older, I bet my grandmother didn't wash her hair very often. I don't remember thinking my grandmother had dirty hair, but I'm just thinking there's no way she did that very often. But anyway, the, you know, she had this long hair, but the women in our church, you know, that'll get in your way. Hair like that, trying to, you know, take care of a family and keep up a home and wash the, you know, dishes and clean the house and run after the kids. You got to do something with that mess, right? <laughs> so the women, I don't know, how did they do it? They... It was, it was rolled up like in two, it was like a tube of hair. It was like a braid and you coiled it up on top of your head. And, and it was usually kind of up here and then back here, kind of sticking out here. And bobby pins and, and uh, 16 penny nails, I mean all kinds of stuff were in there 
to hold that, you know, hold that hair in place, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so they couldn't cut their hair. And uh, women couldn't, there were more restrictions on the women than there were on the men. The women couldn't wear slacks or shorts. Obviously, shorts were, they wore, all the women wore long dresses and maybe, and skirts and maybe, you know, mid, mid-calf. Uh, you couldn't wear shorts. Obviously, that was too revealing, but you couldn't even wear pants, not even loose-fitting slacks. Was, my wife was raised under this. She didn't cut her hair until you were how long? A teenager before she cut her hair. And she, when she was a little girl, she used to play outside with the neighborhood kids in a dress. I mean, climbing trees and everything, you know, which you think about it, that's just absurd. But uh, we, those restrictions, we could, the women could not wear, and the men too, could not wear rings. Because, you know, over in, in uh, uh, is it Peter? You know, First Peter, he talked about, let it not be the plaiting of the hair and the wearing of gold. And so there was no rings, no wedding ring, no, no engagement ring, nothing, no jewelry. Couldn't wear makeup. We had the ugliest looking women in town. I'm t- the, the plainest looking things you ever saw. I mean, it was pitiful. Huh? Yeah, the, the men would come into church, you know, and they'd have nice suits on, you know, and, they, and they'd come into church in a flashy tie, you know, and have grandma on their arm. The, the women, you know, the, and, and I remember there was a major, in our denomination in the 1960s, there was a meeting at the General Assembly and there was a major concession made where women from that time forward were allowed to wear a, we- a simple wedding band. No jewels in it of any kind, just a simple wedding because women were getting hit on by men uh, and that you know, in the '60s, women were beginning to work out of the outside the home a little bit more, and in the marketplace, you know, men were flirting with them, and and they didn't people didn't know you were married, you know. So they had this major concession that the women could start wearing a simple band, but a lot of people in the church still didn't like it. They thought the church had backslidden over it, you know. Uh, we couldn't we couldn't participate in any kind of uh, worldly entertainment. Any place that the world unsaved people went to for fun, we couldn't go. We couldn't, we couldn't go to ball games, not even high school ball games. Couldn't go to ball games because people, you know, unsaved people went there and they got rowdy and sometimes they cussed. And in and, and, and professional games, you know, they sold beer and, and wine there. So we couldn't go to ball games. Uh, we couldn't go to dances. It was, un, it was illegal to dance. You couldn't dance secular dancing. And when I grew up in school, we had uh, uh, square dancing in junior high. I had to get a letter from my pastor. I'm serious. I had to get a letter from my pastor to excuse me from dancing, square dancing, based on religious reasons. Uh, that really helped with the girls a lot too. Uh, we couldn't go to uh, bowling alleys. We couldn't, couldn't go to movies. Movies, you know, back in the 1920s, movies were kind of dark dives. I mean, not just because the lights were out. They were just kind of unsavory places to go sometimes. And uh, I guess that holder, we couldn't go to movies. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't really, uh, we couldn't do things for entertainment and fun that other people did because it was considered worldly. Well, there weren't a lot of things left. You know, we'd have functions at church. You know, we had youth would get together at church and, you know, um, play badminton or something, you know. But uh, it was pretty lame. 
uh, uh, we, uh, anyway, we lived not, that's legalism because uh, the, the commandment was that I heard all the time that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. That's in the New Testament, you know, but that was drilled into us. The pro, and, and, that's, and that's a true statement. The problem is, how do you interpret holiness? In our church, holiness was, was equated to outward looks and externals. You know, uh, not, it really wasn't, didn't have anything to do with the heart, even though I'm sure the elders were sincere about it in their heart. They really wanted to live a holy life, but it was all tangled up with these externals. You know, we couldn't go to the beach. We couldn't go to the lake. We couldn't go to places where, you know, other people were swimming. We couldn't, we couldn't, it was called bathing with the opposite sex. We couldn't, we couldn't do that. You know, we couldn't go. So when my family went, we were in Jacksonville, beautiful beaches. My family, when we went to the beach, we really never made it to the beach. We'd go out Hexer Drive, which is on the north side of Jacksonville, goes east to the beach. And about two miles before the beach, we would, it's all built up out there now, but there'd be a little turnout or a little opening in the, in the grass along the road. And we'd pull off to the little, little sandy place by the St. John's River. And we'd have our little Scotty, uh, uh, grill, you know, and, and we'd have, and we'd swim there. We couldn't go to the beach with other people. When I was in, in, in high school, all of us teenagers, of course, we were going to the beach. Uh, parents didn't know it when they found out about it. We said we weren't bathing. We didn't take any soap. I promise. (laughs) That is, that is legalism living by externals. That's, that's legalism. Today, the charge of legalism is, is, is uh, uh, levied any time a preacher uh, uh, encourages holy living or talks about any kind of sin or deals with sin in the church and, and uh, goes over the, the New Testament instructions about, you know, you're not supposed to covet, you're not supposed to lie, you're not supposed to, to, to be drunk, you're not supposed to, any time a preacher preaches on these things, now that's considered legalism. And uh, this friend of mine, I'll show you what he wrote about me. I just asked, do you have any, you know, examples? And so he gave some examples. Every one of them was just uh, uh, t- a teaching where a pastor uh, taught people that they have to live a holy life. And, uh, and, one, and, and he answered one, he says, Edwin, he said, when the, inst- the instructions of grace, now that, what, that's code for any commandment of the New Testament, you know, Paul said, do not be drunk with wine. That's a commandment. You, get, you see what I'm saying? Well, they don't like to use that word. So any, when the instructions of grace are chiseled in stone, see, that's, that's an, an, an illusion or, or a, a throwback, you know, an, an imagery of the Old Testament you know, law. When the instructions of grace are chiseled in stone, whereby the doing of them you qualify to be accepted by God or to receive what Christ has purchased and freely given to you, you are no longer under grace but legalism. I ask, what do you mean instructions of grace chiseled in stone? Uh, anyway, we, we went, he and a couple uh, of his friends, we were, you know, our friends, we were back and forth. But anyway, he said, uh, get to this point. 
Bear with me. Edwin Anderson, in all our conversation, you didn't mention the examples of legalism that I posted. Well, I didn't intend to. I was just asking him to kind of get a sense of of what, what they think legalism is. He said, it's quite evident when we talk about certain scriptures, we have a different viewpoint on them, which I believe is permitted. But honestly, if you can't see the legalism and what that is according to the book of Galatians and the strong language of Paul against it, and the severity, I question if you're not a legalist at heart or your concept of God is not that of a loving father. Be it as it may, we will just have to agree to disagree. So if you, even if you question uh, the teaching, now, now you're labeled a legalist, which is okay with me. Here's, here's what I want to point out. These, these guys equate every uh, encouragement or exhortation to live a holy life as they, they, they say what we're saying is that if you don't, if you, if you disobey any of the instructions of the Bible, uh, if, you, if, you, if you purpose to obey the instructions of the Bible simply because they're right, then you are trying to win favor with God. And uh, you're, you're trying to be accepted by him and, and there's this straw man argument that they throw out all the time that, uh, you know, people who, who uh, uh, you know, live under the law, they're always trying to do things to be accepted by God, to be saved, uh, to be, you know, a Christian, to be loved. If you don't do these things, you're not loved by God. That's legalism. The problem is I grew up in a legalistic church. I never heard a message preached that said, if you do not, if you cut your hair, you'll not be saved. I never heard that. If you go to the movies, you'll lose your salvation. I never heard that. We were instructed that, that God is not pleased if you do not live a holy life, and this is how you do it. But there was never, it was never preached, and, and, and my church, Church of God, was a denomination I came out of, uh, the Assemblies of God, Pentecostal Holiness, uh, Foursquare Gospel Church, uh, some other smaller Pentecostal groups, all basically have the same doctrine in practice. Though we missed it in, in making the uh, standards legalistic, no one ever suggested that that's how you are justified by God, by keeping these commands. No one ever taught that. Now, today, no one's teaching. Now, when I say no one, let me issue this disclaimer. I'm sure there's a guy somewhere that's teaching if you, if you, uh, you know, break any of these instructions of the New Testament, then you're no longer saved. You're going, I'm sure somebody's teaching that. But it is not prevalent. It is not widespread. But these guys present it as though it is. There's this, like I said, a straw man argument that says, uh, you know, if you, if you uh, are doing things because God's word says you ought to do it, if you're doing it for any reason other than the motivation that you just love God and just want to do something because you love it. If, if there's any sense of God's word says this and so I need to do it, then you're, you're, you're trying to earn your salvation. Well, that's not true at all. Nobody believes that. When I, you accept that one crazy guy. Nobody, nobody believes that. Nobody's preaching that. <clears throat> so I went through the New Testament. Here's what I discovered. And I started in the, in the, in the book of Romans because I, I wanted to uh, do just in the epistles, 
The epistles were written to the church. Here's what I wrote. Go through the Acts and the epistles and carefully examine every passage where grace versus law is discussed or where believers are warned (coughs) about the danger of putting themselves back under the law. Go through every one of them. You will discover these three things. One, the law being referred to is always, I went through every verse, the law being referred to is always the law of Moses. See, they take almost anything that you want to try to uh, have in your life as a discipline in your life, now you're under the law. Like I argued with them a few couple of years ago, how can I be under the law? I was never under the law. I was never a Jew. I wasn't raised to sacrifice sheep. You know, I was never under the law. So how can I be under the law now? <clears throat> the law being referred to in the epistles is always the law of Moses. That is the Old Testament law with its well-defined commandments, ordinances, and regulations, feast days, uh, calendar day, all of that stuff. Not just law as a general principle, as in instructions or commandments in the epistles regarding our, com- our conduct. So there are instructions, he called it instructions of grace. There are instructions in the New Testament regarding our conduct, how we are to live, how we are not to live. Those, you can regard those as commandments because they're given by the Lord. Uh, but the law is being referred to is always the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. Today's teacher, teachers of the erroneous, erroneous grace message make the critical mistake of classifying any exhortation to obey God's instructions regarding holy living or that God is displeased when we do not obey his word as legalism trying to put people back under, quote, unquote, the law. New Testament instructions regarding holy conduct or good works works are not even remotely the same as the law. Number two, without exception, the practice of keeping the law that Paul and others warned against was always the attempt to be justified, that is to be made righteous or to be saved by the works of, of the Old Testament law. Every simple, every single time Paul warned about it, it was always an, a, a warning against an attempt to be justified, declared righteous, made right with God by the keeping of the Old Testament law, not just law in general, not simply pleasing God by keeping his commandments. There is an important and fundamental difference between the two. One is an, att- is an attempt to be justified or saved by keeping the law of Moses, which is not possible. The other are acts that please God by obedience to his will and his word. God is pleased when we obey his word and he's not pleased with us when we don't. But it doesn't disqualify us as Christians. And that's the straw man argument that they keep bringing up. So I want you to be forewarned about it. Number three, I said that, that you'll always observe these three things. Number three, The New Testament presents many conditions God expects the believer to keep in order to please him and to reap the benefits he has provided by his grace. Reaping these benefits or blessings, however, is in no way connected with the Old Testament law, nor are they in any way associated with being saved, being made righteous, loved by God, or or being approved or accepted as his child. Never, never. 
uh, I went through and, and, and read. I've been, I've been doing this for uh, about a week now. This is just something I've been studying on. And Pastor Angela had a, a sore throat tonight. And so about 1 o'clock today, I discovered I'm going to minister tonight. So I thought, well, I better get these scriptures together. Uh, there's not one example in the New Testament of someone being corrected for simply expecting to receive a blessing from God for obeying his word as revealed in the New Testament. In fact, there are many promises of, of blessings for the believer for obeying God and keeping his word. Uh, and like I said, they're really, unless there's just some obscure group somewhere, you know, meeting in a little tiny place, there are no examples today of people trying to keep, I'm talking about Christians, trying to keep the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, or of preachers advocating that people keep the law. In the, in the most strictest of the holiness groups, no one is advocating circumcision, uh, uh, you know, keeping the feast of the Old Testament, or, uh, you know, sacrificing animals. Nobody is, or, or any of the other, uh, you know, 600 and something uh, regulations in the Old Testament law. Nobody is recommending that. So, Here's the evidence. Got your Bible? All right, we got eight minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Romans chapter three. I looked up every example, both the big ones and the less uh, well-known ones, where Paul argued against legalism. Romans three, verse number 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. If you go back and read 1st, 2nd, 3rd chapter of Romans, you'll see that the law he's talking about is the law of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, all the other laws that, that went with it that we read so laboriously through Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all that stuff. That's what, he, that's what the first three chapters, when it talks about the law, that's what he's talking about. And in verse 20 of chapter 3, it says, Therefore, by no deeds, therefore, by the deeds of the flesh, deeds of the law, excuse me, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Notice the warning is about trying to be justified by the Old Testament law. Verse 21 through 23 and then 26. But now the righteousness of God. Apart, notice the subject is the righteousness of God. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being freely justified, freely being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just or righteous and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, the whole point is justification by faith as opposed to justification by law. Uh, verse 28 Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. He's not talking about where you go swimming. You understand? He's talking about the deeds of, of the law of Moses. Uh, chapter 4, verse number 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified works, 
By works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, now what kind of works is he talking about? Works like not wearing slacks? No, he's talking about the works of the old covenant. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawful deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not, does not impute sin. And uh, chapter 7, go over to chapter 7, verse, nope, that's not it. That's, I wrote some other, uh, copied some other verses that, point out something else. The next one, uh, direct scripture like that is in uh, Romans 13. Oh, I'm sorry. We, we, we skipped Romans uh, 8. Go back to Romans 8. You are going to have to turn a little bit. Romans 8. For the law of the, verse number one, or verse number two says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's the old covenant law he's referring to. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law, whose law? Cleveland, Tennessee law? Springfield, Missouri law? No, the law of Moses, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then verse number, uh, chapter number nine, what shall we say then? That Gentiles, this is nine verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained the righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice everywhere faith is mentioned and law is mentioned, it's talking about what you believe in for the basis of your salvation to be justified. It can't be the law of Moses. Chapter 10, uh, verse number three. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. What's the subject here? Righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses, about, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness 
and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 11, verse number five. Even so then at this present time there is a remnant, a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it is, if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. Now, you can't just assign, like these people do, any kind of behavior and say, well, that's the works he's talking about. He's talking specifically about the works of the law of Moses. Well, anytime you see him talking about the works of the law, he's not talking about something that somebody made up, you know, in, in Jerusalem that year about, you know, something. It was about the law, the works of the law of the Old Testament. Uh, Romans 13, verse number eight. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, Let's slip over into 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 14. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken, taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Again, what is the veil? It's the reading of the Old Testament when Moses is read. Uh, Going over to Galatians chapter. Romans and Galatians are the two big books where these things are dealt with. Not as many references in the other uh, epistles. Not as many anyway, that's for sure. In Galatians 1... Verse 13, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Again, those were the religious traditions of the Jews, the Old Testament. Chapter two, verse number three, and then verse number five. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. I've heard this verse of scripture used to argue that uh, these grace guys, we will not submit to, to legalism and the preaching of legalism, not even for an hour. But you have to understand what Paul was referring to. There were some that that even though... Titus did not fall for it and Paul didn't fall fall for it. They were not compelled to. They were attempting to compel Titus, who was a Gentile, to be circumcised, which is a a, a commandment of the old covenant law. So when when Paul says, "We, we did not yield submission for even an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue, the the challenge was they were attempting to put him under the old covenant law. Uh... 
chapter 2, verse 11 through 21. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, that is, there in Jerusalem, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, when, when brethren from the church in Jerusalem, who were basically Jews, when they came, Peter withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the, let me back up to that last, that question. He said, why are you compelling Gentiles to live as the Jews? So again, the, the attempt was to make the Gentiles come under the law of Moses. Submit to all of that law. So he went on to say, uh, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if... While we seek to be justified by Christ, this is a hypothetical, Paul's given. If we, while, while, but if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves, it's not, excuse me, it's not a, a, a hypothetical. He says, if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then grace, then Christ died in vain. Chapter 3, verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law, that's of Moses, or by the hearing of faith? Verse number five, therefore he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Verse number uh, chapter, yeah, same chapter, verse eight through 14. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Notice the whole point is justification, being made right with God. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham before, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Therefore the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse number 17 and 18. 
And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years before, or, or, or excuse me, later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It, the Old Testament law, was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could, give, which could have given life, that is salvation, then truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has, confirmed, has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, there are no voices out there today advocating that you, that you are not saved, that you're not accepted in the beloved, that, that you're not justified, that you're not going to heaven, uh, you're not, you're not going to do those things unless you uh, perfectly obey the instructions of the New Testament. All the commandments, instructions of how to live, how to live a holy life. Nobody is saying that if you struggle with and are, and are trying to keep you know, what the Bible says and obey the best of, to the best of your ability to live a godly and upright life, nobody is claiming that by doing that, people are trying to be justified. That's, that's not what's going on, but that's what's assailed everywhere. Uh, chapter 4, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might redeem, receive the adoption as sons. And therefore, God, therefore your sons, and because you're a son, sorry, it's a really small print. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Verse number nine and 11. How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons of ye and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have labored for you in vain. One thing that these uh, erroneous grace preachers allege is that uh, people who start out with Christ, then as they grow in the Lord, then they start trying to, to clean themselves up by... Uh, living a better life. You know, you know, when you're born again, you start out as a baby. As you mature in Christ, that's a process of sanctification. There ought to be some improvement in your life, isn't that right? There ought to be some cleaning things up in your life. That's part of growing in Christ. These guys say that when believers start trying to straighten things out in the life and start uh, obeying God and living a more circumspect and holy life, that they are turning again to the weak and beggarly elements which we, which we desire again to be in bondage to. But that's not what he was talking about here. 
in verse 9, he says, how is it you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Question mark. Verse number 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. That's a direct relation, uh, uh, reference to the old covenant. It's a direct re- uh, reference to the Old Testament law. He said, I am afraid of you lest I have labored for you in vain. Uh, verse number 21 through 26, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written, where? In the Old Testament, that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, but he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem from but Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Well, what was that yoke of bondage? Old Testament law. Do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, there's evidence to what he's talking about. If you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised. Now, we understand that in our culture, little boys are circumcised when they're, when they're born. It's a health uh, consideration. It has nothing to do with religious law or being justified or anything like that. When I was uh, just got back in a fellowship with the Lord and I was in my 20s, I went back to this church that I grew up in and we were having a class and, and one of the young men raised his head. He said, uh, uh, am I going to hell? Am I... <laughs> No, no, if you're circumcised, that's not what we're talking about. He's talking about being circumcised as a religious duty, okay? So he says, uh, uh, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, the law of Moses, you have fallen from grace, for if we through the spirit for we through the spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love verse number 11 and i brethren if i still preach circumcision why do excuse me why do i still suffer persecution again the uh, the thing that he was opposing was the preaching of the law Chapter 5, verse number 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse number 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 5.22 through 24. Seems like I only have verse 23 listed. Anyway, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Galatians 6, verse number 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, for, for, no, excuse me, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. 
For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. If you go over to the book of Ephesians chapter two, verse number eight says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Again, when he says not of works, you have to interpret that in the context of the entire New Testament. He's talking about the works of the law of Moses. Uh, Chapter two, verse number 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So when he's talking about the law and of works, he's talking about the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That's a reference to the Old Testament. Philippians chapter three, verse number two. Beware Philippians two, Philippians three, excuse me, Philippians three, verse two. Philippians three, two. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, Beware of the mutilation. When he's talking about the mutilation, that's talking about those that would come in and compel the men to be circumcised. He called that the mutilation. He said, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. So he's, Paul said, I'm a Jew's Jew. But he said, concerning the righteousness and concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. He said, I lived by the law. But then he's, he's told us that, that it doesn't profit. Uh, verse number eight. That I may gain, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. He just talked about he was circumcised the eighth day. He was the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee. But then in verse eight, he says, "I want to be found to be in Him, in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ." the righteousness, righteousness which is from God by faith. First Timothy is the next reference. From which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding near, neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So again, he's talking about the law of Moses and... uh, 
He said the law was not made for a righteous man, but for the unrighteous, for the ungodly. But when a person turns to Christ and is born again, the law doesn't have any effect anymore. Uh, I have, I'll, I won't go into he, uh, Hebrews, but I have two more. One from Timothy, 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy. And, uh, and one from Titus. 2 Timothy, verse number, chapter 1, verse number 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Again, that's a reference to the Old Testament law, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in, us, to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Titus 3, verse 5 through 7, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Notice works of righteousness would be the works of the Old Testament law. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Just to save time tonight, I won't go into Hebrews. There are not that many there anyway, but there are a few. Uh, Again, every single reference in the epistles to the church with no exception, not one exception. Every time the law is mentioned, every time believers are warned about uh, going back under the law, every time is talking about the old covenant law and trying to keep that law with its ordinances and, and regulations and its days and calendars and feasts and all that stuff, every time it refers to the Old Testament law and a person's attempt to be right with God through keeping that law. That's not happening today. Nobody's preaching that. But when you listen to the, to the uh, erroneous grace people, it's almost like it's a, it's a, 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 a reproof in search for an error. You know, it's a, it's a solution in search for a problem. Uh, and, and, but what it does do, though, every single time you hear them talk about uh, not being hung up about your past mistakes and failures and, you know, you're not perfect. Don't let that get in the way. God loves you anyway. Well, certainly that's true. God does love you. But there is a, a consistent and, and thorough uh, minimizing the importance of living a holy life. Don't let it bother you. Don't sweat the small stuff. God loves you. You know, you cannot, you can, there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God, so don't try. But the effect is that it waters down all of the instructions of the New Testament that tells us to live right. That's exactly what it does. And so that's the uh, problem with the modern erroneous grace message and why you should be uh, alert to it because like I said it is everywhere right now in the body of Christ and the shocking thing is how much of an inroad it has made into word of faith circles I have pastor friends of mine that are going to conferences that are teaching these saints and I know from talking to them they don't believe this they believe like I believe and they're going to these conferences that are preaching grace this, this twisted version of grace, and they're just soaking it. They don't even realize the difference. 
because they think that, you know, it's all about uh, uh, trying to, to uh, justify your salvation. And the, but that's not what's happening. What's, what's happening is the church, Jesus said that the Bible says that Jesus is coming back for, uh, he gave himself to sanctify uh, and cleanse the church with the washing of the water of the word for that he would present him, it, the church to himself, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Before Jesus returns, the church has got to have some house cleaning. I mean, sin is prevalent in the body of Christ and worldliness. And the church has got to undergo some serious reevaluating and say, listen, we need, to, we need to live holy lives and not be playing around and compromising with the world all the time. This, this, this erroneous message of grace undercuts that, under, uh, what do you call it? Huh? Undermines it. I knew there was an under somewhere there. It, under, it undermines uh, what really needs to be happening in the body of Christ. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.